Welcome to Writes for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. First of all, an apology for the delay in this episode getting out there was due to come out last Friday, Good Friday, but I've had a few editing glitches this weekend. There has been a bit of a delay in getting it out there. This is an interview today between Cassie Hamer, my guest host for this week, and Megan Albany who is the debut author of The Very Last Vivian Walker. This episode is perhaps a little shorter than some, uh, so I thought I might just fill you in, give you a quick writing and reading update. So I thought I'd start today with what I've been reading and give you some fabulous recommendations. I have been reading and have just spoken to, just finished actually, a chat with Lee Kaufman and her interview with me will come out on the Rights for Women podcast this Friday. And we were talking about Lee's new book, The Writer Laid Bare, which I devoured over the weekend. It's a memoir and writing craft book combined in one where Lee shares plenty of uh, her experiences of the writing life and has some really nice tips and things in there for us to think about as writers too. So if you're a writer or even if you're a reader and want some insight into the reading or into the writing process, sorry, this one, The Writer Laid Bare by Lee Kaufman is highly recommended. Watch out for my chat with Lee this Friday on Rights for Women. A couple of weeks ago, if you are a regular listener to the podcast, you would have listened to Meredith Jaffe interviewing Genevieve Novak about Genevieve's debut novel. But I have also been reading Meredith's new novel, The Tricky Art of Forgiveness. And this is a lovely story about people around my age, actually, um, 50-something, And it's just a great story about a a relationship and the sorts of things that can happen in reality and in our minds when you've been married for 30 years and and what that means and how you negotiate some of those difficulties. So it's a beautifully written book. Meredith is a fabulous writer. And I'm actually going to be doing a little uh, sneak peek into this book with Meredith, which will be coming up on the podcast as well. So The Tricky Art of Forgiveness, great reading for you if you're looking for that kind of book. I've also been reading another author who is coming up on the podcast, Sasha Wosley, A Caravan Like a Canary. And this is quite the tome. You can see it's quite a chunky one, gorgeous cover. Really lovely writing in this and a really authentic sort of voice that I feel that Sasha has with this character who is Tara Button. And it's Tara and her brother Zach, a little bit of an odyssey type trip, taking their battered old canary yellow caravan uh, to visit their mother and of course along the way and as the story unfolds their history and their family relationships come to light for the reader and there's some quite emotional scenes and emotional memories for both Tara and Zach as they relive their childhood in a way and relive their younger years as they go on this trip so really lovely book by a fabulous Australian author 
Sasha Wosley, A Caravan Like a Canary. So they're the ones I've been reading. Oh, I've also been reading, which is quite weird, a book that I wrote 10 years ago called Blackwater Lake. I'm actually rereading this as a bit of a secret squirrel writing project I have coming up, which could be something to do with the 10-year anniversary of Blackwater Lake. I don't want to say too much at the moment in case things don't work out, but I want to see how that goes. So it's actually forced me to do something which I don't like doing, and that is to reread my books once they're published. And uh, I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised when I started it. Of course, you can always see flaws in your own writing, uh, and there are things that I would change. Could I do it again? But I've always loved the character in this book, Eve, and this particular book is about a woman who returns to the country property where she grew up after the death of her mother and has to then face a whole lot of ghosts from her past. So it's been really interesting to revisit Eve. I'm still reading that one. I'm dipping in and out of it. But yeah, certainly a different experience going back and reading a book that you wrote 10 years ago. Hard to believe it was that long ago. Things that I am looking forward to reading, I've got two books on my iPile coming up. Uh, the first one is The Truth About Faking It, Cassie Hamer. And this is this has been described on the back. It's emerging of all that is wonderful about authors like Marion Keys, Leanne Moriarty and Sally Hepworth. So there's definitely a lot to love there. I loved Cassie's first two books, After the Party and The End of Cuthbert Close. And of course, Cassie uh, has been, is today, going to be the guest host on the episode with Megan. So I'm really excited to read this book. This book will be out in early May, so only a week away. And I'm really looking forward to reading this because, as I said, I've loved Cassie's other books and I think that this is going to be a really good one from everything that I've read about it. And I'm absolutely super excited to reveal that Kelly Rimmer will be returning to the podcast and I'm holding in my hand here a hot off-the-press copy, not yet in the stores, of The German Wife Kelly's new release coming up. This one too, like her last two books, has been inspired by real events. This one is an unputdownable novel of a community torn apart when a former Nazi family moves into town to work on NASA's space program. So it jumps between two time periods and places, Berlin 1934 and Alabama in 1950. And uh, I'm going to be reading this prior to chatting to Kelly for the podcast. So I had Kelly on the podcast last year to talk about the writing of the Warsaw Orphan. And that was a great craft episode about writing, turning fact into fiction and writing about those difficult um, times and places. And of course, that was set in Warsaw in Poland and was an emotional basket case when I finished reading that book. This that book, as I always am with Kelly's, uh, in the best possible way. So I'm really excited to read the German. So as always, I also put in a Booktopia order for three more books. Don't even ask me why, but that's what we do, isn't it? There's always plenty of reading to be done and there's so many great books out there at the moment. Mentioning Cassie's book, The Truth About Faking It, that's the perfect segue into today's episode with Cassie and Megan Albany on the Convo Couch. Uh, a little bit about... Cassie to start with. Cassie is uh, my guest host for this episode. She's a Sydney-based author whose debut novel After the Party was an Australian bestseller and her second book, The End of Cuthbert Close, was published in 2020, both fabulous reads. Cathy's third novel, the, the one I've just mentioned, The Truth About Faking It, will be in stores in early May. It's about the three trainer women, Ellen, Natasha and Georgie, who have all been excellent at hiding their true feelings until now when Ellen's estranged husband, David, is killed in a boating accident in Thailand. The book is about the fallout from that event, along with other things that are happening in the women's lives. 
and how they're all being able to fake things until the truth has to come out. So any book that has a lot of secrets and, and those layers that you have to dig down to is always fabulous and I can't wait to read that one. Cassie and my guest on the Convo Couch today is Megan Albany. Megan loves to bring humour and joy to the creative process and believes everyone has a story to tell. She has spent over 25 years working as a journalist, editor, scriptwriter, songwriter and composer and has had the privilege of collaborating with some of the best in the business. Megan has a Master's in Creative Writing and has been a journalist with the Courier Mail, the Guardian newspaper in the UK, the Metro newspaper in Ireland, the Irish Echo and the Illawarra Mercury. She's also written for numerous Aboriginal publications and was the scriptwriter for five years for The Deadlies, the National Indigenous Awards, which screened on SBS TV. She was also one of the founding writers for the Aboriginal NITV health show Living Strong and the concept developer for Move It Mob Style. She's also a fabulous songwriter and singer. And I really loved in the interview with Cassie where Megan uh, talks about the soundtrack that she's got for this book. So that's a really interesting aspect of the book and an integral part to the story. Her debut release is about Vivian Walker. Vivian is dying but still has a huge number of things left to finish on her to-do list. Not her bucket list, her everyday list of chores that despite her diagnosis still needs attending to. Her unfinished business includes jobs such as cleaning the fridge, uncluttering the toy room, while her husband's list is skewed more towards having sex and going for long walks in the countryside. Their eight-year-old son Ethan also has a list including playing handball, building a robot and untidying his room. It's a really interesting chat here between Cassie and Megan about writing a David Boo novel, about the soundtrack, about how Megan has used some of her own experiences in the story and about tackling the difficult topic of death. So a little bit of a warning, there is talk around death and dying in this interview. So if you feel that's something that you isn't, you're not up for at the moment, absolutely feel free to dig into a backlist episode of the podcast. But there is plenty to enjoy in this episode for both readers and writers. So definitely grab a cuppa and join Cassie and Megan on the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special episode of Rights for Women. My name is Cassie Hamer, and it's my absolute pleasure to be speaking today to debut author Megan Albany about her fantastic book, The Very Last List of Vivian Walker. Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. Tell me, how has the experience of launching this debut book into the world been for you so far? Oh, look, it's been amazing. It's been a whirlwind, but it's been fabulous. And I have to say that the biggest surprise and the biggest joy for me has been the feedback I've been getting from people who have either um, got cancer or have been through the cancer journey with someone or have lost someone to cancer. And I've been really happy with that because I obviously didn't write this as a self-help book, but it appears to be helpful for people. And so for me, that's just such a bonus. And I've had some emails from people that have just moved me to tears, literally. So that's been great. And then, and also that they're still laughing in amongst it is also what I was hoping for. So I couldn't be happier with the reception that the book is getting. Well, that was absolutely my reaction. But for those who haven't had the chance to read the, this book yet, let's provide a bit of context. And that is that it's about Vivian Walker. She's a woman who has terminal cancer, but she's got a big to-do list before she leaves this world. 
not the kind of list that's the standard bucket list of jumping out of airplanes or doing bungee jumping, but it's far more basic than that. It's things like cleaning out the fridge, doing her tax, deleting her Tinder profile. And she also has made lists for her husband, Clint, and her eight-year-old son, Ethan. And now I just want to give everyone a little taste of the sort of humour that Vivian has, and I'm going to read a little from the prologue. Here it is. I make lists, prioritise lists, redo lists, fish lists out of pant pockets before washing them, follow up on lists and inspect the work once it has been done. But out of the blue, Clint has not only written a list for himself, but he has also made me a list. What is he thinking? He must be emboldened by the fact that I'm dying. He thinks I'm too weak to kill him. Men do not write lists for their wives. Surely he knows this, I tell my girlfriends. Their mouths drop open, and for once they cannot speak. This is akin to marital suicide. But I guess Clint figures our marriage is dead when I am, so he has nothing to lose. It's just so great, Vivian. Congratulations on creating this incredible character. But tell me, where does Viv come from? I had the pleasure and the pain of taking care of a friend of mine um, who had PTSD and she was dying. So I spent six weeks in palliative care with her because she couldn't be there alone. And my friend, uh, Rebecca, was a fabulously funny woman who loved her life admin. And so out of that and out of I lost a lot of people over 10 years and, and one of the themes that seemed to come through is how as women we like to keep trying to control as much as we can even when we're dying and Beck always needed the particular glass by her bed at a particular time in you need to be in a particular spot and my sister's best friend when she was dying was like no I don't want the carrots that way and my sister was saying yes I know you like your carrots julienne not round that's fine and I think the little things are actually the things that we we hang on to and they're also the things that we remember. And often they're not the beautiful things about people. We remember the really annoying things and we laugh about them at the wake and whatever. So it was just about that minutiae of dying and also the fact that as women, we're still trying to get through all the this. Like Beck was trying to choose her songs for her uh, funeral and they were all very inappropriate, not the ones <laughs> in the book, but they were very inappropriate. I had to talk her out of that. So little bits of her, I guess, it's not based on her but certainly her ability to laugh in the face of death and to play pranks on us when she was dying certainly influenced. She was probably a much nicer person than Viv, or she is a, was a much nicer person than Viv, but, yeah, that's where, the, where it grew out of. And also from seeing people caring for people and, and noticing that when we are caring for people, it, we don't necessarily become our best selves because we're in crisis and wanting to give a nod to that. If you're yelling and arguing in the hospital, that's normal. You don't expect to be Mother Teresa when you've never been Mother Teresa before. It's interesting that I think that is one of the myths about death and dying is that it is somehow transformative and something that suddenly turns the dying person into some kind of martyr. But that's it's certainly not my experience of having been close to someone who's passed and it's not your experience either. And this book does a lot, I think, to break down some of the myths about dying and, and eulogising the dead and the dying and those who are helping them. Yes, I think we all love people that we hate. I think we all have people in our family who drive us absolutely mental, but that doesn't mean we don't love them. And so that's why I wanted Viv to be a real, flawed, sometimes unlovable character because... 
just because you're annoying or judgmental or controlling doesn't mean that people don't love you and doesn't mean they won't grieve when you die. It just means they're human. And I wanted to bring the humanity back into dying it. And the, the realness, because I think there's kind of a pressure when someone's dying, you're under so much pressure. And to have on top of that some sort of expectation that you have to be like Florence Nightingale and they have to be some saint who is passing. If they're a Tibetan monk, maybe, but if they're your annoying auntie, probably not. Now tell me, where does the list making come from? Is that something that you do? Oh, no. <laughs> yes, no, I'm a list maker. I have made lists for my husband. And actually the very beginning of it came from someone did mention at some point that what if your husband wrote a list for you? And we were all like, they wouldn't dare. <laughs> Who would dare? No husband would be that brave. And then I started thinking about the fact that as women, most of us all hand a list of jobs to our husband without even thinking twice. And I wanted to address that thing of that really. I accidentally fell in love with Clint along the way because I realised he's kind of nice that he even attempts, even though it's not his thing, he attempts to get through things that he's really bad at and that's his way of, of loving people. But I've also come to a kind of place around this for women and around myself, which is I've realised from interviews and talking about this book, that I think that's how we love as women. I think we write lists because we're trying to control things and we're trying to control because we want to protect and we're protecting because we love. And so it's our way of trying to keep our family safe, keep those we love safe, make them happy. Even if they don't want to be happy, we're going to make them happy. If they just do the list and follow what we say, then they'll be happy. So I realise it's actually annoying but loving behaviour. <laughs> there's, there's such a great satisfaction in ticking off things on your to-do list, but yes. I think you're right. There is a much deeper attempt here, particularly in this book, to control the un uncontrollable. Yes, and, and look, as women also, since feminism and since the role of mothering and homemaking was just shoved off to the side to do in and around everything else, I think lists are a survival mechanism as well. Like we do need to be able to tick those things off and, and we want to make sure that we don't leave. Often when people are dying, they are trying to make sure they don't leave a legacy of jobs and things for those who are, who are going, for those who are left behind. And I think women in particular will do things like what Vivian does, they'll try and get their list done, they'll try and organise their own funeral, they'll try and control it right down to the end and, and it's partly control but it's partly these things just have to get done and if you don't do them, who's going to do them? And that's it speaks to that as well. And I, I did have a woman write to me who spoke about that, she, who's dying, and she said, I'm dying but I'm still dropping my kid off at the school and then I've got to take the dog to the vet and then I've got to go. Like she still was having to live until she dies and often there's that in-between time. Like when you're in, in hospital, okay, some of that burden is gone and you finally get to have a bit of rest. Uh, but leading up to that, I think a lot of people are busy trying to protect their family from what's happening and, and trying to work out, well, I do all this stuff. Who's going to do it when I'm gone and how do I, what do I do about that? Yeah, this concept of the mental load and the way women carry it, I think, is one that has really come to the fore in recent years. And Vivian's lists display her sort of every womanness and the way that she's trying to juggle all these different balls. And her lists for Clinton, for Ethan, and what she wants for them is quite different. She's very tough 
on her husband, but she's fiercely loving of her son. And I'm just interested in why you wanted to set up that dynamic. I think um, I think because it's very easy to love a child, even when they drive you crazy, and to accept their shortfallings because they're a child. And if they don't do the things you want them to do the way you want them to do, then you can come back to, well, they're a kid. Whereas I think I wanted to explore the thing where, because I think it's impactful on men as well, the way the lists happen. And we do, and I've seen it, and we've all got a little bit of us that just gets driven crazy when our husband doesn't do things exactly the way we want them. And we don't feel like we can let go. We're exhausted and, and we hate them. <laughs> and, and we love them and we wish we didn't hate them. And so I wanted to explore that whole thing. And actually in one of the, I've got a soundtrack, which, you know, we can talk about later with the book, but there's a line in that, which I was really surprised. I hadn't noticed when I wrote it, but the line is a song called Clean House and it's based on a Mae West quote, which is, I hate you. Uh, so it's called, a clean house is a sign of a wasted life is the Mae West quote. And there's a line in that. And when I performed it at my launch, I had two launches the women just cracked up laughing and I thought, oh, I didn't even know that was funny. And the line was, I hate you most when I clean. And so it's that kind of resentfulness with which we do all of our loving behaviour. And one of my friends who was there said her new partner looked at her in horror when she was laughing so outrageously <laughs> to that. And he apparently picked up his game after that. So well done. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And it is a partner's best interest to minimise the number of minutes for which you hate them. So definitely helping you out around the house is key. But you, you mentioned the songwriting and I'm so interested in this because there aren't many authors who could produce and make their own soundtrack to a book, I'm curious to know, you obviously did it because you love songwriting. Can you tell me a bit about the songs that you created and why? You yeah, well, I actually saw on a couple of books that people had started to do this weird thing that I'd never heard of back before 2020, which was QR codes <laughs> way back when no one knew what they were. Mm -hmm. And some, people, some authors were starting to put them on their books with a playlist for people who like to listen to music while they're reading or have that as part of the experience. And I thought, oh, I've been a songwriter my whole life and, uh, and I thought that would be interesting to explore and I've done music for film and TV so I like the idea of it being like a soundtrack to the book. And I also just wanted to give, I think music can often say things in a way that can get in deeper or differently to the written word, at the same as art is different to the written word. I just wanted to explore tying those two things together. And, and the songs kind of talk to some of the themes in the book, obviously, and I wrote them, most of them, pretty well all of them were specifically written for the book. So there's a song um, called Never Existed, and Never Existed is about what happens afterwards, like when there's, I think there's a moment in the book where Viv talks about, you'll see my photo, and eventually it'll be that thing that, oh, she died too young, and People will move on and even Ethan, because he's young, he will move on and she'll be a photo in a frame and it'll be like she never existed. Is the, So I wrote a song, like that, which is a really happy number, <laughs> sing along. <laughs> and, and then I wanted ones that would make people laugh. So I wanted to do what the book did. So there's a book called Man Flu, which is self-explanatory. <laughs> uh, sorry, a song called Man And then there's ones about, which I spoke about, Clean House, but there's also one called Forgot to Live. So they're all, there's some dancey ones and there's some funny ones and some sad. There's only, I think there's only two sad songs. So I just wanted, if people wanted to dive deeper into the characters to have a way of remembering them or, and I also just love music and wanted to write some music as well. But it was really, it felt to me like when we done music for film and tv if you write 
music just for yourself. You can just do whatever. Whereas this was very targeted and really, I like writing within boundaries because it gives you, you know, something to say. And I just thought what music would Viv want to dance around a kitchen to? So we did some songs like that and what things would she, saddest moments or her funniest moments. And man flu is, of course, her just completely having a go at her husband with man flu. And they're not written as Viv, but they're definitely things that she would think and say. Yeah, so it's not so much in her voice, but you as the author commenting on her life. Yeah, yeah, it's really just if I was a music supervisor and this was a film, what songs would match the scenes and would enhance the scenes and help people feel the scenes um, if you had a moment of no dialogue, like what songs would go in there was what I wanted to do. So I really gave it a soundtrack. So did you write the songs then obviously after you'd finished the book? Yeah, some of them I wrote as I was finishing the book. I wrote it at the same. I wrote it in the editing. So we had about a year of editing and I wrote it during that time. There's two songs which were written before. One is called Sink So Low and it's just, it's a really childlike song that I wrote years ago. And for me, it was that thing when someone dies and you're like, how could you leave me? But it's that's more for Ethan, that one. And I really, it just fitted perfectly. So that one wasn't written. And the other one which wasn't written for this is a song called Whatever You Need. And that was a song I wrote for a friend of mine who uh, passed away from suicide. So I put that on as a nod for him. And the rest were all written specifically for the. But whatever you need is also about that thing. I wanted that on there too, so people know that I have been asked, "What do you do if someone's palliative or they're dying?" And I said, "Do or say something. Just don't not be there. Don't be worried about saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing. So that's whatever you need is a really good thing. What do you need? What can I do? And they might say, "I need you to shut up and leave me alone. Great, I can do that. Or I need, actually, I'm not earning any money while I'm sitting beside palliative care. Great, give me some money." So it's that rather than are you okay? No, they're not okay. They don't even need to answer that question. What can you do was what that song's about for me. I think you're right. People are afraid of offending or saying the wrong thing. But I think sometimes we're also very confronted by our own mortality when someone close to us is dying, do you think? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think that's definitely true and people run from that. But I think what they also don't get is it's such a beautiful moment. Like for me, I was really surprised. Not that it's not a beautiful moment. It's, it's an honour to be there. For, if someone asks you to be their birthing partner, you go, oh, my God, okay, I might be a bit freaked out by all that goop, but yes, maybe or no, which is fine. All those answers are fine. But if you're there with someone when they're entering the world or when they're leaving the world, it's actually quite an amazing time and it's actually quite reassuring I think if people haven't been around the first time I saw someone die was about 18 I didn't see a die I saw my grandmother after she died and I remember walking into the room and going oh it's okay isn't it grand now not everyone's going to have that experience but for me sometimes there's a relief when people go or there's there is a spiritual moment not that I speak to that but I think it is a spiritual moment and it's spiritual, even if you're just there going, I'm scared shitless of this and this is really uncomfortable for me, but I'm going to stay with this person and hold their hand to the end. Mm. I can do that. Mm. Even though this is hard, it's harder for them. And I think we can all be there for people. And the gift that I got out of that was I think it had taken me a lifetime to go, actually, I'm a good person. And at the end of that experience, I was able to say honestly to myself, I'm a good person. And I didn't even know that I didn't know I was a good person until I did that. So... Being in service in that way, there's so many gifts in it and it brings, I'd never met my friend's parents or her auntie or her brother and I now have this lifelong relationship that no one else can understand. And so there's, there is beauty in it and 
that happens to all of us. Like we've gone, kind of got our spoiler alert. We're all going to die. <laughs> <laughs> you're right, though. There's incredible intimacy when you're with someone in their final moments. What's your relationship like with death for yourself? Sounds like it's pretty healthy. Yeah, I've had, I had a kind of boot camp in death. I lost probably one person a year for about 10 years. And to be honest, when my friend Beck died, she said, you wait till I'm gone, it's going to be so much fun. <laughs> she was quite into near-death experiences. And I have to say, she has hung around quite a lot, been still quite controlling after she <laughs> left. I, I find it not surprising that Beck always wanted to start a publishing company and she was a journalist and so when I got my um, publishing deal and my editor was called Rebecca and then my next editor that came along also in the same company was also called Rebecca I went I hear you wow I know credit where credit's due thank you for the publishing deal she's there there (laughs) all the way (laughs) yeah I feel like for me my belief is people hang around if they want to and then they don't if they don't and I don't have any particular faith around that except that just an inner knowing and my own experience of what I know is what I know. And I think that's what, if you haven't experienced it, then you don't know what you know about it. I think, and I think getting knowledge around it is helpful. I think being around people dying is helpful. I think experiencing death is helpful. I experienced the first person passing when I was 18 and right from that minute it made me go, oh, I better hurry up because I could die. And I think that's helpful too. I think it's very helpful to know that you're going to die. I think Buddhists say you should meditate on your own death every day because then you'll lead a different kind of life. Mm. Um, You probably won't worry so much if you don't get that bargain at night if you're thinking you're going to die the next day. Yeah, I think death is really healthy if we can just stop being scared about it. And I think if we talk about it, we'll be less scared about it. And I think it's also really important to know that a lot of people are not talking about it But everyone, if you have a conversation, so many people, when you open that door of a conversation, they'll say, oh, yes, I lost my sister, I lost my brother, or I've got cancer, and they don't feel like they can talk about it. It's like money and death you can't talk about. But people need to talk about it. It's just a part of life, and we really need to talk about it so that people can feel like they're not alone. The first time I realised I went to this thing called the Day of the Dead, I'm up in Northern Rivers in hippie land in Byron, and, and I went to this thing, the Day of the Dead with Rebecca because she'd lost her fiancé and, and i just lost my friend to suicide. And I got there and there was this whole field of about 50 people and they all came up and they all hung a thing on a tree and said the name or names of the people they'd lost. And I felt so unalone in that moment and I think people feel very alone when they're going through grieving or palliative care or a terminal illness so I think that's why we need to talk so people realize they're not alone if you knock on anyone's door or lost someone they can all share their experience and it may be the same or it may be different but you're not alone because one of the things that your book highlights beautifully is the incredible people who work in palliative care and so you, you're not alone in the sense that, yes, everyone around you is going through it, but you also have your hand held by amazing professionals towards the end. I can't speak highly enough of how remarkable those people are who deal with it on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. And look, one of my best friends now lived in my street and I didn't realise, and she was a nurse at the palliative care. So that's I met her in palliative care. Then we realised we lived in the same street and also the doctor as well. So that was weird but Beck actually was in Wedgetail Retreat which is the only community-run hospice in 
New South Wales. And so they had amazing nurses there, but they also had a team of volunteers who cared for them. It was amazing. I remember when we got there, Beck's mum said, I want to die here. And the dad said, I want to live here. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's amazing. And all of those people do, and they know what to say. They know how to hold your hand. And if you are worried about it, they definitely know what to do. And I still remember my friend, Karen, because I'm like natural health, but and it was true at that point. I was so on the same page with her, and she said, "I believe at this stage of life, every drug is a good drug." No, yet bring them on because what do they do? Kill you? You can take everything you want, and and just having people who've experienced that, they've been through it, they can reassure you. They go, "This is what happens then. This is what happens next. It's normal to feel that way." Mm. All of that, and it's normal to feel every single emotion. It's normal to feel hateful it's normal to feel sad it's normal to feel happy sometimes when someone's saying something funny it's normal to feel all of your emotions rage to be pissed off at the person I've got better things to do than look after you while I die like all those feelings that not everyone has but you're entitled to have all of your emotions and that's where those palliative care workers come in because they've seen it all before this is their job this is what they do and they're so amazing and it's not an easy job to do but if you're worried about being with someone who's palliative, talk to palliative care workers because they absolutely passionately love their job. So that's got to tell you something. The one thing I was surprised by when my father-in-law was dying of cancer was how homely the hospice was. He didn't spend a lot of time there, but a hospice is really nothing like a hospital because it's yeah. end-of-life care. You don't have all the equipment and all the stuff. You might have a drip or two, but there was lovely bedspreads. There wasn't hospital-style smell or anything like that. It's yeah. Very different. And my father-in-law went into a co- became unconscious because he was on the morphine drip. And my husband and my mother-in-law and I were there. We're all chatting away. And my father-in-law was getting a bit. He was starting to move a bit, like trying to get his covers off, even though he was unconscious. And the hospice nurse, in a kind but firm manner, your father-in-law's trying to join in with your conversation, and you are not helping him at the moment so you need to be quiet and peaceful because he knows that something is coming and he may be a little bit anxious about it and and he's trying to be present in this life and not being able to slip peacefully into the next one and I that has always stayed with me I don't think that experience will ever leave me but it's that kind of insight that you need and is really helpful at that point in life and clearly something that you've experienced a lot of yeah, look, and I haven't been in palliative. I've only been um, in palliative care once um, with people who've dying, but I've lost them. I like to keep it varied. I've lost them in all different ways, shapes and sizes. But I think, I actually think when someone's palliative, it gives you a chance to, I was around my sister's best friend when she died, but it gives you a chance to actually deal with a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And terminal, having a terminal illness is terrible, but it does allow you to come to terms with with it and for the person dying to hopefully come to terms with it and not everyone will come to terms with either their person their their friend or family member who's dying or the person dying might rail to the end my friend actually wanted to die she was looking forward to it she was funny not a usual response but she wanted to rejoin her fiance normal too for older normal normally for older people they're quite ready to go so I think it, it is a varied it is a varied response absolutely but I think it's just accepting that However you are, however you show up in the world, that's what's gonna. That's how you gotta. How how you are yes. is how you leave. I don't think that. I think it is a myth that people suddenly change or that you care. Like if you're, I've seen people come in that are the carer 
and have big fights at the hospital when, you know, but that's how they are. And that was their relationship and their relationship stayed that way till the end. It stayed toxic till the end. Yeah. And, but they still absolutely loved each other. Now you've spoken about all the Rebecca's in your life, both in publishing and in your personal life, but can you tell me a bit more about the publishing journey of this book? When did you start writing it? How long did it take to write and what have been the ups and downs of it along the way? So I started writing, I actually went to see a friend of mine who published, self-published a kid's book. I went and saw that. I felt this little kind of oh, little bit of jealousy, which I don't normally feel, and I thought, oh, didn't know I wanted to write anymore because I've been a journalist my whole life. I thought it was over it. And then this particular friend of mine, Lisa Tiffin, formed a writer's group and invited me. And so I joined the writer's group. And we started writing from prompt sentences, something about the colour orange. And that would then form a little piece and we were all just writing little vignettes. And so I started writing these little pieces. And then after, I don't know, a couple of months of going to the writers group, I realised, oh, actually, these are all themed on death prize. And it became the beginning of the novel. And actually, everyone in my writers group has now pretty well written or almost finished writing a novel as a result. So I think it'd be hilarious to get a a compilation and have a bit of a where's wally and find the prompt sentences because they're all totally different books some are young adult fiction some are magical realism some are memoirs so they're totally different books so that's how I started and it probably took I've got a very bad memory but I think it probably took about two years with the book on and off and not really determined to write the book what hurried it up though was I went to the CYA conference, which is the Children and Young Adults uh, Writers Conference, and even though I wasn't CYA, they did have some um, adult publishers and agents and my friends who were children's book authors were going, so I went along to that and I submitted. One of the people I spoke to was from Hachette and she said, oh, what stage is this at? And I said, first draft. And then after I left my 15-minute meeting, I went, it's not ready for this draft. I haven't done anything to it. And then she was like, look, I'd to hand this, hand this on. And so that's where that sort of started. And then I got an agent. And right at about the time when I was going to sign with Hachette, I was shortlisted for the Banjo Prize. And so I had to decide what to do. Did it take long between submitting it at that conference? And then, and you were shortlisted for the Banjo. So there was a bit going on. Yeah. So how did you actually sign the contract with Hachette? So I, I had the initial interest from Hachette and then I had to actually finish the book. So I just let that hang a little bit. And then along that way, I found, I got, my, I got a, a um, literary agent and then Hachette were then interested in a, in a two book deal and it was around exactly the same time. I came home and I felt like a naughty schoolgirl because I had a call saying, you've been shortlisted for the Banjo Prize. And I went, but I've submitted to Hachette and you're only meant to submit to one person. And and I'd submitted a long time ago for that. But then I worked with both. My agent then took over at that point and got me a fantastic two-book publishing deal with Hachette. So I've got a second book that I've just submitted for to start the editing process all over again. Great. And everyone's just been so lovely. And having come from a background in the music industry, which is very much male-dominated and, and quite a difficult industry for anyone, male or female, I think. 
I was so surprised at the support and the care and, yeah, just I felt very loved up by the publisher. So then I had about a year of editing and working with them and I wasn't really aware of the editing process. I thought, job done, you can fix it now. <laughs> that was my approach. And so then I got sent the first lot of edits, which was just a few little, you know, it was a structural edit. My book was 60,000 words when I submitted it. And so I had to get up to 20, uh, another 20,000 words up to 80,000. And so I did that, sent it off, job done. Came back again with some, and I was like, oh, all right, back. <laughs> and then, of course, there's all the copy, you know. And it, being a, I think being a journo probably affected that because as a journalist, I was a sprinter, so I was used to working for papers and you write the article, it goes off to the sub-editor, they whack a headline on, off it goes, tomorrow's fish and chip paper and you're done. Whereas this was quite a process and it was really, it was a great process for me, um, I came to terms with some things about myself. Like I'd get something back and my inner teenager would start going, yeah, 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 what are you doing? <laughs> and then I'd have to put it aside and then I'd come back and pretty well nine times out of ten um, I'd re-look at it and I'd go, actually, yeah, fair point, let me have a go. And so I re- you, re- you do the writing and the editing yourself, which is for the lazy amongst us such a shame. Um, I was happy to... Take my baby, do what you want. I'm finished. <laughs> um, They're annoyingly right all the time. Yes. And, and look, there was the odd thing I pushed back on. I did really fight for Viv to remain. Not that they pushed me that hard on that. I did soften some parts of Viv, but I really didn't want her to be a totally likeable character because, for me, that's the every woman. I wanted us all to be able to see our own judgmental, nagging side and to know that we're not alone in that. And I've had so many women go, oh, my God, that's me. That's my marriage. <laughs> it's a shame. We've all got, and not yeah. that we have it to the extreme, but I think we can all recognise. I can certainly fess up to having a few Viv traits. And my husband does have a couple of Clint traits, even though he wants a T-shirt that says, I'm not Clint. <laughs> There's little bits. There's little bits. <laughs> can you tell me what does a typical writing day look like for you? Do you sit down and have a word count? Do you have some scenes planned out? Or or are you more of a discovery writer where you just do it when you can and you just the, the ideas just come on the page? Like the discovery writer title, I was told I was a pantser, which is a fly <laughs> by the seat of your pants, which is probably less flattering but quite well, accurate. Give, um, I feel like it's there's bad visuals around the idea of a pantser. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. I hadn't thought of the visuals of a... Look, I'd like to say I have a typical day and a routine, but despite having tried my son at a Steiner school for years, I've never managed to get the routine going. I do often, if there's, a, if there's any consistency, it will be that I'll quite often wake up. If I'm right in the process of trying to get a lot done, I did give myself a word count towards the end for my new book because I had a deadline, so I didn't have a... I didn't have a deadline for the touch shop uh, for the very last list of Vivian Walker. I just finished that and then submitted it. Okay. Um, whereas with the touch shop lady, which is my second book, I did have a deadline. So I did give myself a word count, count, which I didn't always reach, but sometimes I do a bit more. I realised I have to give myself a larger word count and then allow myself sure. to come down. Yeah. I don't plan anything with my writing. It's very much I think I react to what's in my environment. I'm a bit lazy like that. I often will wake up at 4 in the morning or 5 in the morning with some idea and go, oh, really? I get out of bed and I'll often find I think I just dream, dream it and then I write it really a lot of the time. And 
I react to things like, so, for example, in the tax shop lady, there's a whole thing where it's flooding. And that was before the floods hit here, but it was just raining and raining. So they ended up with, I was writing in the rain, so suddenly there was a flood. And then I don't know if I accidentally caused a flood by writing it into the world. Your apology, you quite did. <laughs> uh, um, tell me, when you work, do you listen to music? Because music is such a big part of your life. Does that get you in a mood or do you not? can you not have music? No, I can't have music on because I, I want to listen to the lyrics and sing along yeah. and so I tend to not work with music. I can work, I think growing up in a big family, I can work with chaos around me. I can work in chaos or in silence. So I sometimes if I'm stuck, I will go to a cafe and look for someone to walk past that I can, oh, that's an interesting thing <laughs> to make into my book if I'm stuck. And I do sometimes find going to a cafe is good just to get out of the house so you don't end up doing the washing or the washing up or that job that you've been meaning to do that's on your list because I find sometimes if I go to a cafe or a library or I did have a little writer's room which we ended up housing someone in so I'm going to try and reclaim that at some point. That is helpful. Sometimes having somewhere I think as a woman in particular where there's no jobs to look at, that's really helpful because mm -hmm. I can... That's, I'm not a real procrastinator if I sit down to write, but I can very easily find a job to do. And I'm now back on Facebook, which I wasn't on for years, and that's yeah. I need to have my internet off because otherwise there's my cousin, what's she doing? <laughs> and, and that's why I got off. And I also got off because for me Facebook was death book. I got on it when my friend suicided to try and talk to some of the men were talking online as opposed to talking in person. And, again, that's a kind of thing It doesn't have to always be in person. Some people communicate differently. And I found men were talking online, so I got on for that. And then I was online and decked up. And at the end of that, I thought, yeah, I'm going to get off death book now and get on with my life. Very <laughs> sensible. Now tell me, Vivian is written in first person. Was that always the way it was? That's just, yeah, it's just how it started. It was accidental. I just started writing in first person and I think part of me was probably working out and expressing some of my own journey, obviously, and, and dealing with, you know, my own grief and those sort of things. So it started in first person. And then when I went to write The Touch Up Lady, I kind of, I, she, it didn't feel right in first person. I wasn't sure, but writing in third person felt like such a weird thing to do. But now that feels totally comfortable. But, yes, it was just accidental that it started in first person and, and continued that way. But I liked I liked that and I think it actually worked well because she could get in, into Viv's head, which was really kind of important to hear her thoughts. Something is it's a question I don't almost ever get asked is about my identity as a white woman writer. But... You're an Indigenous woman. Is it something you get asked about a lot and how do you feel about being asked about that? Look, I don't necessarily look identifiably Aboriginal to people, so I can be a spy in the world and I often hear things I'd rather not hear. It's an interesting one for me personally because and probably has impacted my writing because my nana didn't want any of us to know about our heritage because obviously stolen generation she was Kalkadoo which is in Cloncurry North Queensland and so she didn't ever want us to know so I only was told after my papa died we found out about our heritage so I found out when I was probably 30 which was you know it was almost 28 years ago now. Just give, oh, 26, how old am I? I don't know. It was over 20 years ago. So I'd grown up actually defending myself against being a wog because I, my dad's side of the family is Maltese and then only to discover, oh, I've got both bits of racism I can have. So 
Yeah, I don't get asked about it, but it, it is interesting. The, the, the question that I do find difficult is, which I think a lot of people aren't aware is a difficult question, and I think having grown up not knowing my Aboriginality, I, I understand, understand, but lately it's harder to forgive people's ignorance because the information is out there. Growing up, the information wasn't out there, but asking someone, oh, what part Aboriginal are you? Not a great question, just a bit of a heads up. Um, mainly because for people who don't know the historical significance of that, that was why children were stolen. If you weren't considered full blood, then you were stolen. And it's also the other explanation for that for people who don't understand it is it's like, what part Catholic are you? What part Jewish are you? It's a culture. It's not. It's a whole culture. So you can't be part that. And so that's why people often identify. There is a move now where people are saying, which is what I do in my book, I, I acknowledge that I'm Calcutta and, you, and European descent because I do identify with both cultures. So, yeah, so I think when you are meeting Aboriginal people, it's really important to just, like you did, ask questions rather than make blanket statements or but be be aware of the questions because some questions are offensive and and if you're interested and you want to communicate with Aboriginal people generally I think people are hugely forgiving and but it's also not their job to educate you about what is offensive and not not offensive just google it that's what we got google for (laughs) when I read Viv Walker I could see in your bio that you identify as Kalkadoon woman but when I read the book I don't know. I was thinking Viv could be Indigenous. Maybe she's not. Maybe she is. It wasn't necessarily that relevant to the story. And I'm just wondering, was that deliberate on your behalf? Yeah, look, that was a tricky one for me personally. But death is not just in one culture. And I wanted her to be every woman. I wanted everyone to relate to her. And, and I also didn't want a whole lot of stereotypes put on top of that in people's reading. One of the things that I'm exploring at the moment is that we assume characters are white unless stated otherwise. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting. And my my next book actually has a couple of Aboriginal characters that will start to address some of those issues. I can't wait to read it. I really love the very last list of Vivian Walker and I'm aware that I've kept you for quite a long time. So I just want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and sharing your insights and, again, congratulate you on a really wonderful debut. Oh, thank you so much. And I think I kept myself for a long time because I can rabbit on quite a lot. But <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It was lovely to, to chat with you and for your um, insightful and great questions. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>